Mind Body Connection podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Mind Body Connection podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Phil Parker, and today I've got the pleasure of interviewing one of the absolute godfathers of the research into the Mind Body Connection and placebo studies. Uh, Professor Irvin Kirsch. He's been working in this field for five decades, I think. Uh, he's incredibly well respected. His papers are referenced by pretty much everyone. He came up with a theory in the 70s called the response expectancy theory, which is kind of central to the placebo study world and the mind body connection. And he's an all round extraordinary guy, as you're about to find out. So I hope you enjoy finding out about what uh, Irvin has to say about uh, depression, about placebo effect, about his uh, work in looking at weird things like prayer healing and how he almost won a Grammy for a music album. So over to Professor Irvin Kirsch. So welcome, Irvin. It's fantastic uh, to have you on the, on the series. Uh, I've been, been really looking forward to speaking to you as we discussed just before we started the recording. Um, the purpose of the, the podcast is to help people to get their heads around some of the incredible work that's being done in research that supports um, this whole conversation about the mind-body connection and we always start by asking okay so what for you is the mind-body connection how do you describe it how do you define it what's the easiest way to explain it to people sure um first of all I don't like to think of the mind and the body as two separate things. Like most philosophers these days, uh, I think there's one stuff in the universe and you can look at it from the point of view of mind, you can look at it from the point of view of body. Uh, you don't get anything in the mind that isn't also represented at least in the brain. And so that shows a, a, a connection that's really, really close and, and intimate. Yeah, I mean, this is a, uh, this is again where this this conversation pretty much always goes, where we where we have to kind of go. Well, if we are calling them a connection, that would suggest there is a separation, and that's right. part of the massive problem in in uh, particularly in Western philosophy from Rene Descartes and all the rest of it. Um, so, uh, do you do you use the word mind body? Do you use the word connection? Do you have a different di distinction for it? What do you, how do you define it or talk about? Okay, it? Um, yeah, I. One of the ways I think about it is uh, an, another part of actually Western philosophy uh, tradition on this, which is Spinoza's idea that mind and body are just two ways of looking at the same thing. Um, there's a fellow in England by the name of uh, Michael Highland at the University of Plymouth, whom you might consider actually talking to, who's developed this idea of complementarity as a way of looking at the mind-body issue and he bases that on the complementarity in physics between light as a particle and light as a wave and it's not that there are two different kinds of light and it's that you can look at light you can examine light as a particle or you can examine it as a wave and that this is in some ways similar to what we mean when we talk about mind and body. Now that being the case, Dr. Highland uh, uh, argues, Professor Highland argues very cogently, I think, that um, you can't talk about the mind causing something in, in, in the body or the body causing something 
in the mind because whenever you have a mental event, that is also a physical event. Yeah. So, so we got a couple of interesting things. Though. The first thing about this complementarity is it really has a, uh, some issues with the whole objectivity of science, doesn't it? That, you know, you as the, as the completely detached and non-involved observer, you shouldn't have any uh, influence on what's going on. Um, and also, as you say, that any mind event or brain event, I guess, uh, has some kind of correlate going on physically because the brain is is a physical thing and of course it's networked up to the rest of our body and vice versa of course because our body affects our brain or our mind as well so interesting stuff so then um, and you're I was having a little CV before we started uh, you have a fan, fantastic CV and, and most of the people I've been interviewing are, are very similar like really kind of smart high-end science trained in all the you know most prestigious places so then the question becomes how on earth do you become involved in something as uh left field in some people's views as the mind-body connection which is the term i'm going to use for simplicity uh this this field because it's quite you know we know that there's an issue within science that if you start looking into weirder places grant funding can become tricky people look at you in a funny way it's more difficult to get published so how did you end up there well it started when i was an undergraduate and uh it started with studying learning about behavior therapy back in the 1970s and uh coming to the conclusion, suspecting at least, that when they talked about classical conditioning as something that's behind the effects of this or that behavioral uh, psychotherapy, that um, actually that what was going on was something more cognitive, something having to do with people's beliefs and expectations. And so I started looking at that within the field of what at that time was the most well-known behavior therapy technique, called systematic desensitization. And that got me interested in the placebo effect. And so I started looking whatever I whatever I could find. I started looking for what have people written about the placebo? How has it been studied? And you can see how those two are connected. And that got me interested in the broader question of expectations and the degree to which when you expect something to experience, when you expect to experience something, that can produce the experience that you're expecting. Now, that's really a mind-mind connection. And one of the things that this idea of complementarity suggests is that we shouldn't be talking about mind causing body or body causing mind. We should be talking about mental events causing other mental events. So expecting to experience more pain can cause you to experience more pain. Expecting to experience less pain can cause you to experience less pain. And that means parallel to that, whatever the uh, physiological, the brain and nervous system correlates of the state of expectation is, is causing the neurophysiological correlates of changes in pain. Yeah. So so we're going to move on in a minute to that last thing you're talking about, which leads us on to, of course, uh, response expectancy and all that important stuff. But just to go back very slightly, when you first started looking at placebos, which I think are not only fascinating, but uh, we'll talk about this later as well, are a, a real future for, for healthcare that, that is to be tapped 
Um, but w what were people's responses to you dabbling in such weird stuff? Because did people think it was weird at that time that you were doing that, or did they think that was quite interesting? What, what was it like at the time? Well, at the time, there was not much of a literature on it. There were some studies of, on placebo that predate me and writings of, about it in the, in the professional literature and the medical and psychological literature. And I studied those uh, very carefully and, and with great interest. But I never had people think of that as weird. Some of the stuff that we are doing now seems more, much more weird to people now, even though there's a greater acceptance of the idea of placebo than the stuff that we were looking at back in the 1970s. I mean, the placebo effect was known then, and it was known to be important enough to have to be controlled for when approving a new treatment. And uh, so that, that wasn't so weird. It just was unusual to study that as your subject. Certainly, I think over the years, the the kind of pejorative, you know, nature of oh, it's just a just a placebo effect. That word has really shifted. It's still not completely. There's still some people who go, oh, that's the placebo effect, and therefore can be ignored. And I think there is this really interesting change by going, no, this is the this is a or at least a rather the placebo effect. Um, it's starting to become something of, of massive interest. And I think hugely due to yours and other people like Benedetti and, and Ted, Ted's work. Um, but we can see the amount. I mean, I was looking at how many citations you've had. So that those people who don't know about citations, when you write a paper, you have to reference the papers that your paper is written, written upon and then Google whoever notes how many times your paper's been referenced. Um, and over the last 10 years, you've had like 2000 citations roughly a year, which is a huge amount. So that means that what it means is people are referring to your work as kind of seminal or important and building on it. So uh, you you certainly are among a very small bunch of people who've, who've helped that journey from a kind of weird um, backwater to becoming something of interest. And as you say, uh, Although it's of interest, it's starting to get more weird. People are starting to, to look at it and go, what is going on there? So let's talk. I'm going to come in a minute to what is your most um, interesting study out of all those. But uh, just talk a little bit about response expectancy, which is, uh, I think, would be defined as one of your theories. Well, it is an, an idea that I invented back in the 1970s. And the response expectancy is an uh, expectancy or a belief that you're going to experience something different, that you're going to have, that you're going to feel more pain, you're going to feel less pain, you're going to feel sad, you're not going to feel sad, you're going to uh, get very anxious if you go into this situation. All of these are automatic or non-volitional, as I have termed it, non-volitional responses that you have, and they can be increased, decreased and even generated by the, the experience can be generated by the expectancy. And that is important. First of all, it helps explain what's going on when you take a placebo, but more generally, it means that you have within you the capacity to change your experience independently of things out there. Hmm. So the, the, there's a stimulus coming in that's causing you to feel pain but you can also modulate that pain. You can modulate it through the way you think, what your beliefs are, and that's what a placebo does. So all the things that 
are affected by placebos are things in which they could, they could be potentially treated uh, or at least have an augmentation to treatment that's psychological rather than physical. So psychological treatments will affect these conditions. Yeah, and the psychology of it, so your, your beliefs, expectancies, anticipations about it will have, and this is the interesting thing, will have a physiological effect on how, so there will be changes in neurotransmitters, blood pressures, nervous system activations, and so on. So although there is this expectancy, which is our opinion, belief, you know, our mental processing, it then locks into a change in physiology positively or negatively. Well, you have to go back one step before that. And that is the expectancy itself is not only a subjective event, it's also a physiological event. When you are expecting, that expectancy is a brain event. So when you're changing other physiological things, it's something physiological that is the brain that's changing um, other aspects of the brain yeah. and they have subjective concomitants. Yeah, so on all levels, there's this, re again, it, it really kind of blows away the whole mind-body thing. It's like, it just, what it, what the stuff that's going on, the stuff that happens, yeah. Yeah, so, there, there is a one side. There are things in happen, that happen in the brain and the body that you're not aware of. But anything that you're aware of is going to be represented yeah. in the body particularly in the brain and so this this model the responsible expectancy model is a really good way of viewing why it is that people have some extraordinary responses to placebos and of course no nocebic responses which uh, i can't remember what order we're going to be showing these podcasts so maybe i should explain nocebos nocebos is considered to be the evil twin of placebos whereas, whereas placebos will produce uh, some kind of positive effect um not because of what you've had, not the intervention, but your expectancy or your response to that. So you take a dummy pill and you, your headache disappears. Nocebos are why you take the dummy headache pill and you get the side effects. Or somebody says to you, if you take this, this may make it worse, and it makes it worse. So just in case nobody, uh, listeners aren't quite clear what nocebos, which are less, more, less familiar, and placebos are. So, yeah, uh, so a really important theory, which has been, it's around, been around since the 70s, which... Uh, using my mathematical brain now it's 2020 is quite a long time ago so <laughs> so 50 years uh, and what are people saying about it are they saying yeah that's right that's still good as uh, uh, the general consensus that because often what happens with models is they get sculpted or chucked out how's it faring well certainly within the realm of, um, of placebo placebo effects uh, there's wide acceptance of the notion that uh, placebo effects are linked to response expectancies. So that's one of the driving forces uh, behind placebo. So how old were you, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you came up with this idea? Well, I was born in 1943, so you can do the math. <laughs> so 30-something? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. 32. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. well done. Good work. Uh, and to have it last for 50 years in science is uh, particularly cutting edge science is pretty cool as well that means that you you got its number pretty well at an early stage so yeah well done hats off kudos to you 
Um, I, in reading uh, some stuff around you, some very interesting, I mean, extraordinary papers. I'm going to go for a very quick list of some of the things that intrigued me. Looking at uh, ECT, electroconsultive therapy, which surprisingly they still do on people. This is a 2019 paper. I used to work in a, in a mental hospital many, many years ago, psychiatry hospital, uh, where they still did it. And I, when I found out what they were doing, I was like, really, that actually happens, which is where you strap someone down, you sedate them, and you you blast them at their brain with uh, lots of volts to see to, to hopefully help their depression um looking at uh hypnosis looking at um is there any evidence for uh, prayer healing making a difference um how using open label placebos which again i might have to explain so n classically with placebos it's what's called deceptive placebos which is where you give someone pretending it's the real drug or the real intervention a big paper that you and Ted Kapitak did uh, on IBS, uh, where they did open labels, which means they're saying, listen, guys, this pill contains nothing. It's empty. There's no, no medicine in it. It's a placebo, but studies have suggested it will make a difference. Uh, really interesting paper. And it's probably, I don't know if it's to your surprise, but to many people's surprise, it didn't matter that people knew it was placebo. They still got incredible response. And then other work you've been doing with some of my other interviewers looking at our open labels so when you know you're getting a placebo compared to deceptive placebos do they make a difference what things make a difference really fascinating stuff um whew, so yeah loads of stuff to talk about but my question for you maybe another one interesting one is about about when a patient has is having treatment for pain what happens to the clinician's brain that's a really interesting idea as well you know the, the mirror neurons so and he also, by the way, he also had a hit single in the 70s, I think, as well, around Watergate. Is that true? Is that true? Did yeah. you have a hit single? Yeah, he did. We'll talk about that. Talk about that later. The album was nominated for a Grammy as best comic recording of 1970. I saw that. How about that? Amazing. So, that was a lot of fun. We were one of five nominees. Richard Pryor won that year. Wow. Amazing. So, um, out of all the papers you've written, and uh, other people have written that you think in the field, particularly, I guess, placebo and mind-body connection. What for you is, is the paper you would point people to uh, or the, the thing that you think is most impressive or most groundbreaking? If you could, I mean, that's probably a tough gig, but... That is tough. <laughs> uh, the, the papers that I've done, the one that has attracted the most attention and gets the most citation is a meta-analysis that we did on antidepressants versus placebo for the treatment of major depressive disorder. Is this is this what's is this what's referred to in some places as the notorious two thousand and eight paper? Is that the one? Well, the two thousand and eight paper. Is the, <laughs> I haven't used the word or heard the word notorious, but I suppose you could. Uh, I know. I, I, I saw it referred to as that, and I was like, "Why is that notorious? That's in, what an interesting position that is." So yes, so uh, tell us a little bit about that because that is a really important paper, and I think that's where I first heard about you. Were you at Hull at the time? Is that where you did that? Um, let's see. When we did a two thousand eight, uh, uh, yes, I was. I was at Hull at the at at that time. Um, and uh, uh, what we did was to uh, go to the FDA, use a law in the U.S. called the Freedom of Information Act, and obtain from the FDA their statistician's data 
the data that the drug companies had sent to them in the process of getting approval for what at that time were the six most widely prescribed antidepressants. So now we had the data from each of the trials that were done on those six antidepressants. We analyzed it and we found that it's true. Many people uh, showed a good sized response to the drug, but they also showed a good sized response to the placebo, the difference in the effect or the response to the drug and the placebo on their feelings of depression was minuscule. It was not enough to be clinically significant. It was well below what NICE had suggested as a criterion for clinical significance. It was just not clinically meaningful. And uh, we published those in uh, a medical journal, PLOS Medicine. And it has, as you notice, attracted a lot of attention with the beginning of a big debate and some people saying our conclusions were nonsense and others supporting it. Um, one of the things that has pleased me the most is uh, about a year ago, a poster was presented by uh, people at the FDA looking at all the data ever sent to them for all of the approved antidepressants since 1976 or 79, I forget which of those two dates is, is, is correct, uh, up until 2016. So it's data on more than 73,000 depressed patients in more than 200 clinical trials. And they replicated almost to the first decimal point in their poster, they replicated to the first decimal point exactly what we had found with our smaller study. So that has been, you can't, at this point, it's impossible to argue with the data that we have. You can try and make excuses for it. You don't like the scale that was used, although the new FDA analysis concludes all the scales that were used in um, the various studies, not just uh, the most common one. and. Uh, the data are what they are. They show a very small drug effect, chemical effect, due to antidepressants on depression. You do get side effects due to the drug because it is an active drug. It is a, a, something that does something to your, to your system. But what, when you're seeing changes in depression, that's almost exclusively, almost exclusively a placebo effect. Mm. And I imagine some people were intrigued and some people were not very pleased about those results when they came out. <laughs> Absolutely the case. It's still the case. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that I, I remember reading that at the time. And so my ex clinical experience with depression, working with depression is, you know, giving people pills, this doesn't really make any sense. It's not the problem. The problem isn't a lack of neurotransmitters, you know, or whatever. The problem is the way that life is affecting all the way they're responding to life and that's what needs to change you need to find different ways to stimulate different pathways and certainly that's been my experience um although i can understand why people would be in, would just want give me a pill and make it all go away yeah, absolutely but what's interesting of course is it doesn't work it doesn't significantly work well enough or you might as well give them a pill with no side effects a dummy pill or <clears throat> there are many other treatments that give you the same response as the drug, slightly better than placebo the pill, that are not drug treatments. Uh, psychotherapy is, is one of them. They seem to have more lasting effects. Um, there's some evidence that the antidepressants may be 
causally linked to becoming depressed again in the future. So you're less likely to relapse and get depressed again if your depression is treated by some other means, such as psychotherapy, but even physical exercise can produce a lasting effect on depression without uh, uh, leading to the kind of relapse that you see in people who are on drugs and then try to discontinue them. And also, not only do you have withdrawal issues, but I think some of the key uh, side effects are things like depressive episodes and suicidal ideation, so, or, or thoughts. Uh, and speaking of jargon, uh, you mentioned the NICE guidelines earlier, and again, some of our listeners may not know what that is. This is part of my job, is to catch catch science jargon. So the NICE uh, guidelines are, in, in the UK, uh, National Institute of Clinical Excellence is a, is a body set up to define what the NHS basically will spend their money on by they have to meet certain standards and then they go, okay, that's something we will approve for treatment and delivery for the NHS. Um, and what they found in this particular study is that the the guidelines that, uh, that NICE had kind of made up, as far as everyone can tell, of, as to how effective something had to be hadn't really been reached and, and even the, 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 the degree of effect wasn't that strong even to, if they did reach them. So, yeah, and, and I think as a result of that paper specifically, they dropped those particular targets. The, the, I think it was the Cohen's effects, wasn't it? They, they changed their position on it, saying things have to be more effective or we, we have to measure it in a different way. So really interesting. So that is that is a very, very key paper. Any other papers you'd like to throw into the ring as uh, really significant? You, you talk about that as being one of the most um, referenced. I think that's true. Uh, any for you, per, you have a personal favour or something that for you really changed your way of thinking about stuff? Well, I can go back to another question that you asked, and you asked about whether when I started doing this work, people thought it was just weird stuff. One of my favorite areas of research right now is an, within placebo is a phenomenon that's considered weird stuff when people first hear about it, and that's the open label uh, placebo. And uh, that was first thought of by... Uh, two researchers back in the 1960s, uh, researchers at, at John Hopkins University who first tried giving open-label placebos to a very small group of patients. They had no control group, but they found people seemed to respond to it, and they wrote it up, and no one paid any attention to it until many, many years later when uh, Ted Kapchuk and I and others put together this study on irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, where we use an open-label placebo, where we told people this is a placebo, but this is, seems to be crucial. We also explain to them why it is likely to, it could, why it might work for them, even though it, there's no medical ingredient in the pill. And we had a control group that did not get the pill, and we found that giving the pill had a good size effect comparable to the best medications that we have for irritable bowel syndrome. Um, we have since extended that and others have replicated it and extended it. Uh, one of the more recent ones was a study that was done on chronic low back pain. Uh, it was done in, in Portugal by Claudia Carvalho. Uh, she was the lead researcher. And again, we had a control group we found that people who were suffering from chronic low back pain got significant relief and reductions in disability as a function of taking these placebo pills, which they knew were placebos. Um, we have 
are just finishing up a paper now. Claudia went back, recontacted the same patients for uh, five years later. So we have a five-year follow-up, and they have maintained their gains on wow. both uh, pain reduction and disability, and they've decreased substantially their need for pain medication. So they're not taking as many uh, pain drugs as they used to before they were given the placebo. So what's your understanding of that? So we know that they can generate change as a result of response expectancy or whatever mechanisms are going on. But there often is a question around placebos as to whether they have any longevity. So the Parkinson's studies that Benedetti did, they found, uh, again, I can't remember the order, these interviews are coming out, but it's briefly, they injected them with this thing called apomorphine, which uh, allowed people to produce dopamine, which is what's missing in Parkinson's. It stopped their tremors. They did it again the next day because it doesn't last for too long. They did it again the next day, three days in a row, apomorphine producing change in symptoms and tremors fourth day they give them a pretend injection saline water salt water saying it's apomorphine and they get a change again the same kind of change physiological change uh, which is absolutely amazing because when they looked investigated further they found that people were producing their own internal dopamine absolutely incredible but they also noticed that it kind of faded after a while didn't maintain um, and quite often that's the thing that's presented against placebos that uh, it will work for a bit but here we're seeing longevity so what's what's the theory what's your theory behind the maintenance of that change well part of what happens is that the change reinforces the expectancy so I'm expecting I'm going to get better I get better oh I thought I might now I'm even more sure of it you have then this snowball effect in which the belief that you're going to get better helps you get better, strengthens the belief, which helps you get better. And the data that I've seen, I've looked at many long-term studies across a number of conditions where you look at medical treatments and placebos in the same study, and you look at it over time, studies that have one-year follow-ups or follow people for up to uh, uh, two years, and what you'll tend to see is that the difference between drug and placebo, or sometimes it's surgery and sham surgery, uh, so it's not just necessarily drugs, but the difference between the real treatment and the sham treatment, the placebo treatment, wind up being parallel over time. Effectiveness decreases often, but, and sometimes not, but when it does, you find that in both the real treatment and in the placebo treatment, and you have placebo effects that we have seen in um, re placebo responses that we've seen in the treatment of pain that have lasted for up to two years. And it's not because the placebo treatment, the sham treatment stopped having the, the pain went back up again. Two years was the last time they looked at it. And one of the things that I consider is going on is it's kind of a, a map change, as you were, you know, that idea that the Korzybski's idea, the map is not the territory that, you know, we have a kind of version of how the world is that should, I think there must be some kind of sense of shift when somebody goes, what I'm better. And that was, there was nothing, but I am better. And you can almost hear their cognitive dissonance and their cogs turning as they go. So better, but there was, I wasn't given a better. I, I, this must be something to do with me and then suddenly they recognize well 
ah, I am empowered in this, I have some say in this, and, and I could see that would absolutely have longevity, and certainly that's something for a long time we've been trying to clinically harness, like how do you get people to that place where they go, I can switch this on, because all the placebos are really doing is, is a, a lever, you know, to get that internal mechanism clunking into action, and the question is, what you know, what are the best ways to, to trigger that? We don't want to be duping people all the time, or not even duping, but giving them pills just to produce that response. There should be a shortcut where they can switch that on, which I think is very interesting. The newest shortcut that I have learned about was something that was developed by a psychologist in Denmark by the Niels, by the name of Niels uh, Bag, and uh, what he has started doing is uh, with his psychotherapy clients is having them imagine taking a pill. They're taking an imaginary pill. And he, he tells them about the open label pill. He talks and he talks to them about what's for the, what they're hoping to get out of it and what color it should be and what size it could be. And he has them do it in his office and they look at what happens. And then he tells them, well, you know, um, now that you know how to do it, you can do it whenever you like, whenever you feel a need, when you're getting anxious and you feel a need to come, you can take your imaginary pill. He's got a number of case reports. A couple of my colleagues have tried the same method. They've had success with it. Uh, right now, we're in the process of designing a clinical trial to test it uh, formally, but that's one of the more exciting new ideas. It's yeah. something that I remember using or learning about in about the 80s, uh, looking at, you know, where, almost from a kind of hypnotic perspective, you know, you could argue what people are doing is, you know, deeply imagining, as, and maybe we'll get into the conversation about state hypnosis and non-state hypnosis in a minute. They don't have to be in hypnosis, just just imagining enough that experience and we know we know this don't we from our own experience if you drink you can go out for a drink with some friends and you're just not feeling in the mood and the alcohol doesn't hit you in the way it would do as if you're going out in a very kind of effervescent mood it would affect you better there's those other studies where they give students you know they create a bar with you know drinks vodka and tonic with no vodka in and people show signs of being inebriated so we already know that people uh, can trigger this in all sorts of interesting ways. But I also like the idea of you know, look at what color would it be? Because we know, of course, that colors and shapes and sizes have a, a different impact on how people respond to pills and placebos. So yeah, and, and again, my work is all very much about what is the quickest way to get people to switch this on? They're, they're, you know, the mind is an amazing thing. All we've got to do is find out how to how to work it as, as cleverly as we can, because the fascinating thing I think about the placebo effect is it demonstrates daily that amazing stuff happens, that there is extraordinary potential. Those p p Parkinson people producing dopamine, which is fundamentally their problem, they can't produce dopamine, is just incredible. And you know we've seen this in so many different conditions. And that's the other interesting thing about the placebo is that this effect doesn't seem to be limited to particular conditions. That That's very intriguing as well. So, um, anything you want to add to that? Well, just that there are, there are some conditions that are more amenable to placebo effects than others, and some aspects of conditions that are more amenable. So it's easier to get a change in subjective experience and the correlates of that changes in the brain than it is <clears throat> some of the physiological uh, uh, issues that are involved. If you break a bone, 
um, the placebo might help you feel less pain, but it may not affect, and it's not probably would not affect uh, how quickly the bone heals. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Although I would suspect if somebody, in terms of response expectancy, if, if somebody's thought, I bet this won't heal, I bet I'm a fragile osteoporotic person, that that may not be conducive to speeding the bone heal. But we'd have to research that to find out whether that was true or not. <laughs> I saw some interesting studies on asthma where they replaced um, the inhalant with, uh, or they first added inhalant with, I think, rose. Uh, rose aroma and then they removed the inhalant and just went with the rose aroma and people still got the same physiological change actually that was something back from the 19th century <laughs> when a physician had a patient who was asthmatic and was able to trigger the asthma with a plastic rose and <laughs> that was that was the beginning of, of that one i believe it was a scottish physician if i recall correctly but what we found with asthma is that we can get reliable changes in people's self-report of their asthmatic experience, what they experience, their subjective experience, it's much harder to get changes in their uh, respiratory function. Interesting. So that, but the subjective effects are real. For some conditions, it's the subjective effects that matter, uh, matter most. So with chronic pain conditions, what you really want to get is this change in subjective experience. Same yeah. as anxiety conditions, depressive disorders, and so and so on. Yeah, because there's only really one measure of depression and anxiety, and that's asking someone how do you feel. And it doesn't really matter. Every other scale is at some point referencing what are you, how are you feeling right now, and then writing yeah. it down. Yeah, interesting. I know I know people who've got who are still um, defined as having depression, although they haven't, because they've yet to go to their doctor to, so the doctor can go, how are you feeling? So, and they go, I'm fine. They go, well, I can officially declare you no longer to be depressed because it's one of those conditions that can only be diagnosed by a doctor, but can only be experienced by the patient. It's very interesting. So um, let's move to, uh, what are you seeing in terms of the debate um, of this whole work? Um, I've had, some interesting conversations as i said at the beginning where people say that's all just nonsense nothing to it it's just people being fooled people thinking they're better there's no physiological correlate it's all nonsense so why are you spending money on researching that we should be putting it into proper medicine uh do you come across that much um what are your thoughts about it well one of my thoughts about it is that you could say the same thing about certain medications there's no way to physiologically measure changes in depression that work for drugs and not uh, placebos. There are some brain imaging studies showing that uh, when people get better on either drug or placebo, you get some changes in, in the brain, but there don't seem to be any specific brain effects that are connected with uh, the therapeutic benefits uh, of, of taking a drug. Yeah, and uh, I think I'm right in saying that you your position on the depression as a uh, biophysiological disease is uh, you, you have a particular perspective. What is your perspective on the, the etiology or the, the pathological process, if there is one, of depression? What did, what's your take on it? The question makes sense. Uh, it, it makes sense, uh, but I, I don't want to talk about the 
because that lumps too many things uh, together. But one of the things that can lead to depression is what the uh, Oxford psychologist uh, John Teasdale referred to as depression about depression. That is, people who are depressed have a sense of hopelessness. One of the things they're hopeless, feel hopeless about is their own depression. That keeps them depressed. They can, they're depressed about ever coming out of this feeling of, of, of depression. That being the case, any kind of new treatment that can lead them to believe, oh, there is hope. I might change with this one. They now have some the beginnings of a positive expectancy, which is one way of thinking about hope. It's the beginnings of a positive expectancy about something that you want to see uh, happen. And since one of the major characteristics of depression is hopelessness, that can cut across the sense of hopelessness. So certainly when what you're looking at now is depression about depression, then now what generates depression in the first place? Well, one of the things we know is that there's almost always some kind of trigger. It might be the loss of a loved one. It might be the loss of income, the loss of affordable housing, something that makes you feel somewhat uh, uh, desperate. And that's the kind of event that can produce depression, and it should. Depression may in many cases be a normal reaction to a terrible state of affairs. I remember reading, uh, I think it was Yatko, who's, who defines depression as learnt pessimism, that you get to a point where you just see everything as the worst thing. And that's in, an interesting, I think, an interesting conversation about it, because if it's a learnt behaviour, then it has the potential to be unlearned or replaced with something like maybe learned optimism or learned hopefulness, which brings us back yeah. into the conversation about uh, response expectancies and, and positive beliefs about things. So let's move to the future. So uh, where would you love to see the future of healthcare based on the work that you've started? Uh, where do you see the future research into this going? What's your thoughts about those things? Well, let me divide it into two sub-issues. One is the depression area and the other is uh, placebo effects more generally. In the area of depression, I think the existent data right now would suggest that we ought to be de-emphasizing medications <clears throat> and utilizing the safer alternatives, and there are many of them. I mentioned two, psychotherapy and physical exercise. Those are the better studied uh, of them, but research also says you get a, shows us that you get a similar response by taking um, omega-3 fish oil, um, through yoga, through meditation. We need more research into that. Research right now and treatments for depression wind up being financed primarily by the pharmaceutical companies, and they are not interested in studying those for obvious reasons. So that means we need some government funding for good re outcome research on these alternative treatments. We know that if you ask depressed people, you give them a choice and you say, what would you rather have, an antidepressant pill or psychotherapy? We know that about three quarters of them, three out of four depressed patients say, I'd rather have the psychotherapy, not the pill. We ought to be making that more widely available, available without waiting lists because wait, being put on a waiting list, if any has any effect, it's a negative effect. Mm -hmm. 
some data that there might be a negative effect. It may be a, a nocebo effect of being put on a waiting list. So we need to have alternative treatments available um, and be recommended first before antidepressants are given. That's that part of it. The other part of it is a big task, I think, almost all of us in, in the placebo research community, which doesn't mean that we are placebo research. It means researchers. It means we <laughs> are researchers who study placebos. Not that our research, the placebo the research isn't real. Um, but I think that all of us in that community pretty much agree on this. One of the main tasks now is finding ways to harness this potentially beneficial uh, effect ethically, without deception. And that's the importance of the open-label placebo and the imaginary placebo, two ways of, of doing that that need to be better studied, and hopefully finding ways to implement that, how to use and develop effective psychological interventions for those conditions that are amenable to it. It doesn't mean that the, the, that the cause of the problem was psychological, because we know that placebos and other psychological uh, uh, treatments can affect pain that's caused by something very, very real. We do experimental pain studies where we intentionally induce pain in order to be able to study the placebo effect, short-lived pain, uh, obviously. So the other thing is to help people understand that if we're saying that your mind can have some control over this, can have a beneficial impact, that there's something psychological you can do that can make this better, doesn't mean that it was caused by your mind. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point. It's something that we have struggled with in my, my clinical work for a long time, where we say, we're helping you with your physical stuff. It's, we're not saying you're pretending yeah. to be ill or it's all in yeah. your head, but the modality we're going to use is to get your mind and brain changing your physiology. And as soon as you use the word mind or even brain, people are like, oh, get away from me. You're talking, you're saying it's all in my head. It's like, no, really not. Um, so, yeah, getting that clear. And I think hopefully this podcast series will help us, as will the research in really clarifying. It's this, it's not even interconnectedness this oneness of these this system that the brain body mind are all part of one thing and if you shift one it will shift the other and you know, one of my one of the bits of research i like there's a research they did into taking probiotic yogurts you know those little yogurts people take for digestion and they found that if people took it for just a few weeks you get changes in i think it was in the insula a certain part of the brain which you could definitely see in the people taking it compared to people who weren't taking it so you're seeing the uplink the vagus nerve probably which has most of i think 90 percent of its fibers go upwards uh this it's not just the brain talking to the body the body talking to the brain as well and really kind of considering that in our in our healthcare model fascinating so i'm going to finish with uh unless there's something extra which, yeah, something extra you might want to throw in. But what I'd like to finish from a practical level, which is all the stuff you've looked at and experienced and you've done so much extraordinary work. If you were to kind of give a tip to either clinicians listening or patients, what's the, what would you what would be your tip, tool, exercise? What would you say is important that they could 
takeaway for the clinical practice or as a, a client, as a patient, to help them be weller or deal with uh, issues or, or accept treatment better and anything? Okay, yes. One of the things that we know is that the patient-practitioner relationship can make a difference in outcome. It can do so when the treatment is a placebo. It can do so when the treatment is not a placebo because every treatment has a placebo component to it. Part of the effect may be due to the chemical composition of the drug or what you're doing physically, but part of it, especially if it involves the subjective experience, uh, the condition itself, part of it is likely to be due to your confidence, your lack of confidence, and part of it, it is due to, and part of your lack of confidence or confidence can depend on how the clinician treats you. So my message, I think the most important message to clinicians, and many of them know this, but unfortunately many do not or ignore it, is pay attention to your patients. Be warm, listen. Don't be turning your head and working on a computer, get, trying to get all your notes. So one of the things that my primary care physician does now, which I find very helpful, is uh, she has a scribe that comes in and takes the notes so that the clinician can just focus, look me in the eye, pay attention to what's going on. And having that kind, taking the time and paying attention and being warm and empathetic can increase uh, the efficacy of real good medical treatments and not doing it behaving in a brusque manner, not just a, that can interfere with the beneficial effects of many treatments. Mm. Yeah, really, really interesting. I mean, the other thing, the other side of it is, if your clinician is that, that's great. If your clinician isn't, then there's a question is, what can we do as patients to get the best from a not ideal situation? Because otherwise our health is dependent on how brilliantly behaved the the clinician is and sometimes they have a bad day or they just happen to turn up at the wrong the wrong place the wrong surgery so what can we do i think it's a very interesting question what can we do to ensure that everything they say we are able to take in the best way and use to harness the response to expectancy ideally if both people are doing that both the clinician and the and the patient are doing it we have a very potent mix of possibility but thinking about and something i talk about a lot is the etymology of words so the word patient comes from the same root as passive meaning to bear to bear pain to to, to bear difficulty uh, and to become active rather than to be patients to, to kind of take a role in well what can we do uh, it's our body what can we do to help it as much as we can well i think you've said much of that very well and that is that one can take a passive view or one can take an active view to treatment and taking an active view to being a partner with your physician in, in, in treatment and, and recognizing that you can do things that can help facilitate or, or get in the way, uh, that's very helpful. For me, I've always tried to be careful in who I choose as a primary care <laughs> physician. Uh, I had a wonderful experience when I was living in New Jersey some 20 years ago with a physician whose first name was Marnie and I've referred to the effect that Marnie had on me as the Marnie effect. Uh, she, she was warm, interested, 
one one things I noticed in every visit that I had, she would at least once, usually only once, just touch me on the shoulder, just like that, like that, nothing else, and that communicated care, warming. I wound up trusting. I remember uh, living in another country, and having a question that I wanted answered, and two years after not having seen Marnie, I gave her office a call and got advice from her. Why? Because she was the clinician, the physician that I trusted the most. Really wise words. I think and I really like the use of the word warm in there. I think that's a very interesting word. I think certainly that's why most people get into medicine uh, or, or healthcare is they care and they can get distracted by all the other things they've got to do. It's, it's a tough, it is a tough gig for sure. But reminding ourselves that that pausing and putting our attention into that person may save us hours of paperwork down the road if we can stop them being repeat customers. We have to say also to our uh, third party providers in the US health insurance, the NHS in, 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 in the UK, is that it can be cost effective to provide for the time needing to develop a mm. good patient uh, clinician relationship. Yeah, I think that is absolutely the case. And the short termism, which we see all around the world, and this is another question we could have asked you, uh, which is like, what are the links between what we're talking about and the bigger system that we live in the environment? You know, the short termism is, is one yeah. of it, you know, not understanding the interconnectedness of things. But yeah, I think there is short termism in, in, in trying to cut down appointment times and get everything wrapped up when right. actually spending time might be a more cost effective thing. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated uh, your spending time with you talking to you it's a real privilege actually to talk to you because you have been there for such a long time as a kind of you know uh, torchbearer for this this interesting conversation that i think uh, provides a, a very fascinating and, and, and powerful possibility for the future of healthcare because we know the way we've been going drugs you know short termism um isn't really working that well and uh, many people will quote how many doctor's hours are taken by things that don't respond well to those things so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us it's been really lovely to speak to you thank you it's been a great pleasure and i look forward to seeing the podcast excellent thanks a lot and you take care you too take care the mind body connection podcast the body and mind i hope you enjoyed this episode please do subscribe to us on itunes like it, review it, and share it. The more people know about this, the better. And don't forget to join our podcast mailing list by going to philparker.org forward slash yes, and you'll get extra stuff, bonus material, and program notes. See you there.